It's Monday, March 6th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. Happy National Oreo Cookie Day. That's a pretty big occasion, right? I mean, 105 years ago today, the the National Biscuit Company, or as we know it, Nabisco, now the property of Mondelez, introduced the Oreo cookie. Yeah, I mean it's it's been I it's been a part of all of our uh, childhoods growing up. I mean like yeah. back to the day of like taking two of the original Oreos, uncapping them and then like making your own version of the double stuff. I mean, yeah. I like to think that really we were pioneers. I mean, we're about the same age, so yeah. we were doing that kind of stuff. I mean, we changed the landscape for so many today. <laughs> Because our behavior is what really prompted, I think, the development of the actual double stuff. Of the double stuff, sure. Yeah, sure. Hey, you're you're welcome, America. You're <laughs> you got it. Hey, no problem. Can I just say that I was at Target yesterday, <laughs> and I'm walking around. My son was looking at stuff, so I was like, well, I'm just going to wander aimlessly around the store. Which I figure, in you know, in a decade or two, I'll just be doing yeah, that. On I think my you're going to be doing it. That's but uh, I I I go down this one aisle, and they've got Easter. Sort of springtime themed candy and food and that sort of thing. And the Peeps Oreos were there and they were stacked high and they were stacked deep. And it was clear when you looked at, you step back and you looked at all the shelves, all the shelf space, and you looked at how many packages of that horrendous cookie were up there. It was clear to me nobody's, but people are coming down this aisle. They're buying other stuff. Nobody's buying these Peeps Oreos, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I got to believe that uh, the apparent side effects probably aren't helping the cause. Uh, there are reports. Sounds like there are some side effects. There are some side effects on the digestive side of the Peeps Oreos. We're not going to go into that, but uh, but let's just say there's, there's, there's some news reports uh, from legitimate news sources to that effect. Uh, we're going to dip into the full mailbag. Let's start with the number one gainer on the NASDAQ today, and that is not exactly a household name. Concert Pharmaceuticals shares up 80% on the news that Vertex Pharmaceuticals, a, a, a bigger and better known company, and one we've talked about before, uh, Vertex is buying Concert's cystic fibrosis treatment in a deal worth up to $250 million. This is massive for concert pharmaceuticals and their shareholders, because that is just not a big company. Uh, shares of Vertex are flat, which tells me that, if nothing else, Vertex didn't overpay for this. No, they didn't. And I think if you look at the actual deal, the the drug that they're purchasing the rights for hasn't made it through actual FDA approval yet. So there's something something there as they got, well. They got to think they like their chances, though. One would figure, but what I've, I've what I've come to find in this in this uh, line of work is that nothing is ever certain until it's actually certain. A lot of times, the FDA can make them go back for more testing and whatnot. But ultimately, I think that they have done their homework um, enough to the point where they feel pretty good about this uh, drug. And I think it's an important move for Vertex because they're really placing their bets on being the leaders. In the cystic fibrosis treatment market, and so, you know, I wouldn't look at this as anything on the concert side. I mean, that still is just a tiny little biotech that really would be more or less just kind of a gamble in one of those types of companies that, if you wanted exposure to it, you'd have a big basket of a lot of these types of names. But with Vertex, I mean, this is a big company that actually has done very well over the last decade. Now, it's worth noting the past couple of years, it's had its fair share of challenges. 
and that is because it really had to make this pivot to the cystic fibrosis market away from HIV and hepatitis treatments that it was well known for. Uh, Gilead came in there and really started taking some share there. So, with Vertex, it's, again, going back to uh, building sort of this arsenal to to fight cystic fibrosis, which is not curable, it's treatable. Um, it's, it's a relatively uh, small, I, I guess, uh, Disease that doesn't really in terms of patient population. Yeah, I mean, I think they they see in the in the 10K there that between the treatments that they have, the two treatments they have there with Kalidico and another combo drug called Orcombi, that's they treat approximately 40 percent of the 75,000 cystic fibrosis patients in North America, Europe, and Australia. So it is a small patient base. Nevertheless, it's an important market to address there, and certainly they they've. I think developed a lot of research on the treatment side for that, and this is sort of another uh, opportunity for them to build up that arsenal, so to speak. Um, ultimately, I mean, time will tell as to whether this concert drug actually gives them uh, what they are actually looking for. I mean, you know, it still needs to make it through the the testing trials uh, and, and gain approval. But all in all, I think it makes a lot of sense for Vertex to really uh, continue pursuing that market because they've identified the market. They know it well. They've already got a good arsenal in in the way of treatments there. This helps build that pipeline up even more. And and it's not to say that they don't have a pipeline with exposure to treatments uh, in in the cancer world and whatnot. But again, I think when you're looking at uh, companies in this uh, industry, it pays to focus on the bigger ones, the the healthier balance sheets, the one with the resources that that can really go out there and and not only, Tackle big problems, but also identify great technologies in smaller companies and bring that into their fold, which is what this looks like. One of the things we talk about and look for in terms of the companies that we're looking to invest in is what is the track record in a in a given area, and sometimes we talk about it in terms of share buybacks. You know, how good is this company at allocating their capital? Sometimes we look at it in terms of dividend raises. Do they have a history of doing that in a methodical way that they don't need to backtrack or cut a dividend, that sort of thing? In terms of pharmaceutical companies, is is it the same sort of thing in terms of drug approval where it's if you see a company, and obviously Vertex much bigger than Concert, but if you see this company has a history of getting drugs through, then it tends to bode well. Or is it, or does that not matter? Is there is it just sort of like, look, you can be a big successful, growing drug company like a Vertex or like a Gilead Sciences, and every process with the FDA is its own process, and sometimes you get through, and sometimes you don't, and that's just it. Well, I would imagine every process is its own process, but I would also say that, typically, your bigger companies with more experience in going through that process are going to understand sort of the nuances involved in things that need to be done. And and so I think that would be a bigger advantage of of one of one of the bigger farmers versus like one of the little biotechs is just that you have the financial resources, you have that experience going through that process before, you sort of you sort of know what it takes, so to speak. And so I think from concerts perspective, they're thinking, hey, rather than than us having to deal with wrapping this all up, perhaps it makes more sense to have a bigger partner. Um, with us in, in in helping to kind of kind of get through the remainder of this process, um, it's just I think like with anything else, 
the more experience you have doing it, typically the better you're going to get at it. And, and Vertex certainly has a lot of experience in it. Also, the FDA is a government agency. It it's is. not like they do a ton of hiring and they have a lot of people sitting around with with time on their hands. It's you know, it, part of the, part of the whole process with these drug companies is just sort of. Getting getting in line and figuring out how can we move up in the line? How can we get the attention of the people who we need to talk to to so that they'll pay attention to what we've got in the pipeline? Yeah, and it's an important job. I mean, it's not something where you just kind of go in there and hey, let me let me throw you a little extra cash there to kind of help this thing move <laughs> along. I mean, the, the ramifications of their decisions are obviously extremely important. You're so. saying the $50 handshake doesn't <laughs> yeah. cut it at the it's, FDA? It's isn't like paying some guy to make sure your housing inspection goes okay. I mean, it's uh, obviously the ramifications of the decisions that they are making uh, will play out for, for many, many years to come. And so, I, I think you can see this FDA decision-making go either way, but generally speaking, the stuff that I've seen um, watching companies like Diax, for example, a small little biotech that that uh, uh, went through this process as well, it just it, they really do seem to take it seriously. And when there is uncertainty, uh, they ask these companies to go back to provide more data, more uh, feedback, more proof that what they're bringing to the table uh, really is important and really does need to be improved, uh, approved. Reporters for the New York Times have active Twitter accounts, and the New York Times is going to start running those tweets from their reporters inside the newspaper. I don't know what to think about this story. I don't know if this is a good move by the New York Times, that they are taking what they deem to be valuable content from their reporters and saying, you know what, we're going to print this a day later. Or is is that a good move or is it like a bad move by Twitter that they've got this content on their platform that the New York Times deems valuable enough to print in the newspaper a day later and they're just letting it go? Yeah, well, I think ultimately it's a good move by both. And I think on the New York Times side, I liken this to the 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 creator who's just kind of going about their day and all of a sudden comes up with an idea and they record a you know a voice memo um to, to sort of capture that idea, whether it's a song or whether it's a comedic bit or a reporter and a question that they want to ask. I think that Twitter serves as that kind of a medium for a lot of people in this space where they can kind of get a thought out there immediately. Um, and then they have a record of it. They can find it. Um, so, so from that perspective, I think it makes a lot of sense for the New York Times because it's bringing a lot of relative uh, relevant content um, into uh, their articles that Will help sort of not only substantiate the point of the article in the first place, but I think also keep it fresh. I think it really does allow reporters that opportunity to get their their best thinking in there if they want. Um, I think this is generally the direction we're headed now. I mean, on Twitter side, I mean to me, this is another example of the direction Twitter needs to be headed. I mean, I think for the longest time, you know, you look at Twitter as just sort of this. Tool where people go out there and fire off tweets, and some tweets are pointless, but some people have you know great things to say, and we pay attention to what they're saying. But but Twitter, I think, needs to go beyond just being like social media. I mean, Twitter needs to pursue this strategy of being an, an outright media company. And I think they're doing that to a degree, at least, and this is another sign of that. Uh, the fact that they're going to be streaming a lot of video this year uh, also uh, sort of sort of uh, plays into that as well. And I think that's generally what technology has given us the social part of social media really is just kind of the norm now. So, it is just media for the 21st century. 
the thing that Twitter needs to figure out how to do is to capitalize on stuff like this. I mean, you have this opportunity really where instead of having to, to necessarily deal with a middleman, I mean, that's why a lot of people go to Twitter because they can get their information straight from the source. And I mean, we see that with President Trump every day. He bypasses the media altogether, just says whatever he wants right there. That's where you're going to get the crux of his thinking, at least. And so Twitter needs to figure out ways to capitalize on this because it is. It is an important medium. I don't know that I see it really being displaced as a as a medium anytime soon. I mean, the network effects there are very impressive, but what is not impressive is how Twitter management has attempted to capitalize on this. And it's not the most attractive platform for advertising because it's so fast. They need to figure out other ways to capitalize on it. And if it, if it comes down to Something where they're partnering with all of these different uh, publishers, whether it's the New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal or whoever, partner and perhaps you could even offer a premium product, right? Where I mean, you can distribute all of this content in the form of one sort of big newspaper, for for lack of a better description, that that brings everybody into the fold. There, I gotta believe there are probably some people out there that would pay a very modest little monthly subscription for that if it's gonna, you know. Eliminate all of the trolls, advertisements, and and the noise that doesn't really matter. So I think it's another good example of sort of the power of Twitter, the way it works. Um, to date, I, I think that, that what management has 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 failed to do on the on the front of monetizing it is uh, is a real shame. And I, and I hope that they have some ideas here um, in, in how to potentially uh, take this you know to the next level because I, I do think it's neat. I like it. I, I've I've incorporated Twitter material into content that we publish here. Uh, for for a million dollar portfolio, uh, a lot, and it's it's just all very useful, relevant content. They need to figure out a better way to uh, to, to to sort of monetize that. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool dot com. From Dan Schmidt, who asks, uh, I've heard about dollar cost averaging when getting into a position. What about getting out of one? If you've decided to pull the trigger on a sell, do you do it all at once to minimize transaction costs? Or do you do it in several increments to maximize the selling price and profits? It seems like the same logic would apply to both buying and selling, but I've never heard of anyone talk about dollar cost averaging as it applies to selling. I I hadn't thought of that until he sent this question. And I think he's right that the the logic would seem to apply to both, but I've never sold a stock in increments. I when I when I decide to cut bait for whatever the reason, it's gone. Yeah, and I think you keyed in on on just what I was thinking about there as well. Is you got to understand why you're selling. I mean, there are going to be a number of different reasons why you sell, and so I think that that really is what dictates this. Because yeah, I think dollar cost averaging into an investment is a great idea. It's it's a neat way to sort of get exposure without having to commit yourself to one price, especially if you feel like it's a volatile holding or you feel like there might be some better opportunities down the line. Um, and, and we talk a lot about buying in thirds, right? And that's saying maybe you have three thousand dollars you want to put in this one name. Well, perhaps you split that up into thousand uh, dollar batches there, and you buy a thousand dollars worth of shares at one point in time, and you follow it, and then you buy another thousand whenever you feel like it's opportunistic, and then you you round out the position when it's time. But in selling, I mean that that does really come down to what is the reason that you're selling. Are you selling because it's a broken thesis? Because if that's the case, then I don't think dollar cost averaging out of the position really makes a lot of sense. Um, are you selling because you need the money? If you need the money, then you probably need the money, and you need to sell as much as you need to sell to get out of it. Um, there are instances where you may be selling just because you feel like you have 
too much exposure. Perhaps you've you've got hold of a winner that's done really well, and you need to pull a little bit of that money off the table. Well, then that that probably means that you're not going to want to sell all of that position. You just sell a little bit of it off, and you maintain that core position to to con, you know let it continue winning. Um, so I think the bottom line is it really does depend on the reason why you're selling, and and typically. A lot of times when I sell, if it's a business that I really, really like, and I don't want to eliminate that position completely, but I either need the money for something or I want to put that money into another investment, I'll maintain just a small core position to make sure I keep an interest in that holding so I can continue following it. And also, I may at one point or another add back to that position at some time if it proves to be a you know a good opportunity. But again, I think it goes back to understand why you're selling, and once you can sort of come to that conclusion, that's going to dictate really how you're going to exit that position. Do you ever keep one share as a reminder, as just sort of, or because you know that's that's uh, you know something else Dan had touched on in his email was okay. Let's say you sell the whole thing. Do you go back and check? Do you you know how? Or should you just let it go? And there, I mean, it, for me, it sort of depends. There have been times where I've sold a company because it's like for whatever the reason, and I just sort of think I'm done with this. It doesn't matter. Like it, it's out of my portfolio, so it doesn't matter. And there are other times when I just sort of go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go check. I'm just gonna yeah. see what it's doing. No, but when you go check, <laughs> to I mean, torture it's one of those myself. Things, if you go check and you realize, oh god, that was just the dumbest thing selling that holding. I mean, I, I think it can be helpful because there's a lesson to be learned there. Um, it's a lot easier said than done. Uh, typically, if it's a if it's a stock that if it's a company that is just not performing uh, based on the initial thesis, the reason why I invested, I'm usually pretty content to just cut it and let it go. Uh, sometimes I just happen to go back there and check and see how things are going. Again, that's water under the bridge, and there's nothing you can really do about it. But I I, I do feel like with investing, I mean, it is one of those things. It's it's like golf. There's always a way to get a little better, right? And so with investing, I tend to I tend to look at it the same way. I just it's a lifetime thing, and I'm always trying to figure out mistakes I made, things I did well. How can I help? How can I use all of that information uh, to help me get better? It doesn't hurt to go back and check on those on those cells every now and then just to see was it the right decision? Was it a bad decision? Um, a lot of times. Probably the most prudent action is to just not do anything at all. Um, and if if you feel like, well, maybe I want to hang on to a couple of shares just to sort of reiterate the fact that I made a mistake here, that can be a nice way to keep it on your radar, just as a reminder not to do that again. Um, eventually, though, you you get sick of it, and you want to cut bait anyway. <laughs> Two things before we wrap up today: uh, South by Southwest is next week. Uh, we've got more details to come. Uh, that uh, we'll be sharing uh, here in the podcast and on Twitter. But uh, we are planning a happy hour in Austin, Texas, next Monday night. Uh, so stay tuned for more details on that. And uh, if you're in the area, whether you live there or you're going to be in town for South by Southwest, drop us an email, marketfoolery at fool.com, and we'll, we'll email you everything you need to know. Uh, a sad bit of news at the end of last week that I just wanted to touch on before we wrap up, and that is that uh, Paul Kangas died. He is the longtime. He was the longtime host of the public television news program Nightly Business Report, and uh, uh, as David Gardner uh, indicated on Twitter, before the internet, a nightly market rundown was uh, special and important. And f- uh, for those unfamiliar, I mean, for for the people of of our age and older, 
Jason, they they probably remember Paul Kangas. Uh, for those who don't, Paul Kangas was as straightforward and as trustworthy as you could want in a news anchor. He was a very smart interviewer. There was no bluster about the guy. He always served his audience. And for years, many years, Nightly Business Report was the single most watched business news program on television. Yeah. And Kangas is front and center of the reason why. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was telling you this before taping. I mean, when we were in Kazakhstan, um, it was from 2006 to 2008. And as you can imagine, we had some some time inside while we were out there. It gets very cold in Kazakhstan for a lot of the year, but we were lucky enough to have uh, American Forces Network, which was uh, a limited supply of TV, but nevertheless, it was TV that that we got to watch that kind of kept us connected. And Nightly Business Report always came on at like two or three in the afternoon, which I mean, obviously, was a little bit unique in that it was a Nightly Business Report. But I watched it religiously because it. Obviously, it was something that was very interesting to me, and and that was really uh, Paul Kangas got me through a lot of a lot of cold days there in Kazakhstan. I remember um, very well, and I agree with you totally. He he was just a rock solid anchor, and it was just just the facts, and, and he put a good sort of good spin on things, and it was just uh, sad to see he's gone. Uh, I got the chance to meet him briefly. We, uh, this was maybe 2000, 99 or 2000. We were down in Miami, which is where Nightly Business Report was uh, located. We were down there for an investing conference that the Miami Herald had, and uh, there was a reception, and uh, I, I went up to him, and he could not have been nicer and more gracious with his time. Um, and uh, and this is something uh, that that David Gardner pointed out, and is and is absolutely true that um, he was an early friend of the Motley Fool. Uh, there were, uh, and I know this because I was uh, heading up our media relations at the time. There are a lot of very skeptical people in traditional media in the '90s about the Motley Fool, and. Paul Kangas and Nightly Business Report. Paul Paul was very much a validator, and it was, you know, it was great to be able to say to a reporter or a producer who wasn't really sure about this internet startup company um, with the two brothers with the crazy hats. You know, it was always great to be able to say, well, you know, um, uh, they've been on Nightly Business Report a, a bunch of times, and it was it was an instant validator that uh, you know that was one of those things where. You, you get his seal of approval, you're yeah, feeling pretty good about it. The seal of approval from Paul Kangas was just invaluable. So, uh, rest in peace, Paul. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about in The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.